Well, the scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. We've been looking at this letter that Peter writes to the uh, churches in Asia Minor. And today we're looking at this, the second chapter, verses 11 through 25. This is a reading of God's word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperors as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as an honor, as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning, and we come to you because, Lord, we're desperately in need of hearing from you. We need to hear your word, your guidance, your love, your law, your truth. So by your spirit, uh, open the scriptures to us. Open up our hearts to hear it. Help us have consolation, convict us, inspire us, direct us by your word. We're so desperately in need of your spirit this morning. So minister to us through your word, through your servants. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we, we are living in some, some really crazy, uncertain, chaotic times. You know, not only are we dealing with the pandemic, but we're, as Dre prayed about this morning, we're dealing with... The, the fires all over California, the West Coast. I woke up this morning to my car in ashes uh, from the uh, Bobcat fire, uh, which is pretty close to where we live, and just the devastation that we experience. And you know, the, one of the reasons why we need worship is uh, one of the reasons we need the Bible specifically is that the Bible is written for people in times of trouble. And it's written in the context of trouble. It's written for people who are experiencing all kinds of trouble. And we need that word. Uh, we're reading First Peter. And First Peter was written in a time of great upheaval where Christian people were being persecuted. They're being threatened. Uh, they, were, they were under under threat. 
And Peter writes this word to give them encouragement, to give them direction. You know, the Bible uh, and in church history, the context of church history uh, were things like the plague, natural disasters, political turmoil. That's Tuesday in the life of church history. I mean, we've been through all of these things, plagues, the Black Plague, natural disaster, all kinds of difficult upheaval. And God's people have not only survived but thrived through all of that. In First Peter, the, toward the end of it, one of the things that Peter says in chapter 4 is that he says, don't be surprised when things are crazy around you. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. And he says, don't think that something strange is happening to you. You know, we're living in some strange times, and it feels like some strange things are happening to us. And Peter writes it to say, hey, don't be alarmed by all the craziness. Uh, don't be surprised by everything that you are experiencing. And encourage us to look at suffering through the through uh, the person of Jesus, that Jesus suffered. He experienced intense suffering in Peter shows us the redemptive nature of all of that, that God is at work through the most tumultuous things and times. Today, we're looking at a particular subject which is very pressing on Christians today. Uh, Peter talks about the idea that as Christians, we live as exiles, which means this world isn't our home. And what Peter is saying is that we have a very different relationship to government and to politics. And he, he, and he says that Christians should have a very different take on that, uh, especially today we need to hear this word. What is a Christian's relationship to politics, to government, to my leaders? Uh, specifically, Peter talks about slavery and um, masters and their servants. And a lot of people have trouble with this passage. Uh, this historically we're going to talk about has been used uh, to justify some really evil things. How do Christians look at this passage? What are we supposed to take out of this passage? Uh, it's a very pressing issue. If you're not Christian, you probably get tripped up by this passage. How does the Bible look at power and authority? How we respond to it? And the Bible actually gives us a very nuanced view of all of these things. I want to look at this passage through the lens of this idea of injustice, some that we're reckoning with as a society. And I want to see that this passage addresses this idea of injustice in three different ways. Number one, it calls, it's a call to fight against injustice. Secondly, it's a call to endure injustice. Third, it shows us the end of all injustice. So as we look at this passage, we're going to look at it through the lens of injustice. And the first thing is a call to fight against injustice. Uh, we've been looking at this letter. It's a letter written by Apostle Peter who lived, walked, uh, heard all of Jesus' teaching, was commissioned by Jesus. He's an apostle. And he writes this letter to Asian Christians. And he wrote this letter to them, and the key thing we've been coming back to is exile. In fact, here in the second chapter, he repeats that, these words. In First Peter 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter calls these believers foreigners and exiles. 
even though he's talking to people who are not literal foreigners or exiles, they're probably citizens in the places where they live, yet he calls them foreigners and exiles. And the reason for that is, as we saw in the first chapter, when you are born again, when you believe in Jesus, heaven is now your home. God is now, now your father. And as Peter says, we're now all foreigners in this land. This is a strange land. It's not our homeland anymore. And we are, we are passing through. We're on a journey. And Peter says that because heaven is now our home, God is now our father, we have a different relationship to everything and everyone. Peter says you have a different relationship to your past That's your past. You have a different relationship with your past desires. That's why in this second chapter, Peter says that, uh, that we should abstain from our previous sinful desires. He says that they wage war against our soul, that they destroy, they now destroy our soul, that we have to leave those things in the past, your past life. Peter also says, now our relationships are different. The way we relate to government and leaders, that's also different. You might think that Peter would say, now that we're foreigners and exiles, now that this world is not our home, you might think that Peter would say, pay no mind to the authorities and political leaders. Especially because in the first century, in Peter's time, the emperor was Nero. Nero was infamously... uh, propagated a system of oppression against Christians. He persecuted Christians. He felt threatened by them. He wanted to exterminate them. So you would think, especially in Peter's time, he would be anti-government, or he would say, pay no mind to Nero, to the emperor, to the Roman government. But instead, Peter doesn't say that. He flips it, and he says, be respectful of government, submit yourself to government and to every legitimate emperor because they are key instruments by which God brings order to society. He calls us to submit. Specifically, Peter in this passage says submit, that slaves should submit to their masters. He calls us to respect authority. This passage has been Troubling, to say the least, for a lot of people. Historically, this passage has been used to justify slavery. And many people historically have said, hey, there are slaves in the Bible. And that is, in in some sense, they would argue, legitimized. What I first wanted to do is help you understand this passage and slavery specifically in the first century. A lot of people, when they think about slavery – uh, in the Bible, they automatically think of American chattel slavery and how it was practiced in America historically with the transatlantic slave. But I want to show you that, that actually those are not the same things. Uh, but even before we get to this idea of slavery, what Peter does is he puts the context of slavery in a wider context, and it gives us an even broader principle before he talks about submission. And that broader overlying idea is this idea of freedom. This is what 1 Peter 2.16 says. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slave. 
Peter says, submit to all authority. But even before he says that, he says the bigger idea is that we should live as God's free people. That freedom is the key principle that Christians should live under. That we are called to live free. A key mission of God for his people from the Old Testament to New Testament is liberation. In the Old Testament, the seminal event, the whole Old Testament was what? God liberating a people from slavery. That's the central issue. That's the central event in the entire Old Testament was liberation from slavery. God is liberating his people. In fact, in Exodus 20, when God, before God gives them the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of who he is and what he did. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before God gives them the Ten Commandments, he says, hey, remember, I am not some despotic dictator trying to lay down the law on you. I am a liberator. And when I give you commandments, these are commandments to help you stay free. Remember, I am, I rescued you from slavery. I'm not going to give you another form of slavery. I'm a liberator. That's my heart. I've come to rescue you, to liberate you. When Jesus comes, he comes as a liberator to set us free from our greatest enemies, sin and death. He comes to set the captives free. All throughout the Bible from old to new, God is setting people free from slavery, both physical and spiritual. God is the liberator. That's the key idea of the entire Bible. God is liberating his people. The call of Christians then is to live free, to live free. That's why sin is so bad because sin enslaves us. Peter says live free in the Lord. God is a liberty. So the question is, why doesn't Peter directly contradict slavery then in this passage? If God is liberating his people all the time, what about this passage which directly speaks this idea of slavery. First Peter 2.18, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I mentioned earlier when people look at the Bible's idea of slavery, they automatically think about the, the historical chattel slavery in America, when in the first century, slavery was very different than our historical forms of slavery here in America. In Roman times in the first century, historians believe there was that one-fourth, a quarter of everyone living under the Roman Empire was a slave. But slavery looked very different. Uh, you became a slave by being a prisoner of war. You could be born into a slave family, or you can voluntarily become a slave for a period of time to pay off your debt. Slaves could live good lives in the first century in the Roman Empire. Many slaves were doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, and artisans. Slaves could also own other slaves. Often slaves were better educated than their masters. Uh, that doesn't mean they all lived good lives. Some were beaten, mistreated. Some lived under very harsh conditions. They were forced to be minors. But slaves could be freed. Uh, you could pay off your debt and become free, or your master could also liberate you as well. Uh, often slavery was for a, a, a period of time in which one could be freed. Having said that, 
Uh, slavery is not something condoned by God, even in this way, in the Roman first century. Nowhere in the Bible is slavery ever endorsed. Uh, think about the differences between slavery and marriage. Marriage is an institution that God created. It was God's idea. This is Genesis 1 to 3. God created marriage. He also blessed marriage. He said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. It's applauded. It's a creation, creational ordinance, not slavery. Slavery is not created by God. It's not condoned by God. In fact, every principle in the Bible militates against slavery, kidnapping, demeaning, defacing the image of God. Cruelty, exploitation, those are all specifically prohibited in the Bible. All of the principles of the Bible militate against slavery, especially as it has been practiced historically. So the question is, why doesn't Peter simply come out against slavery? Why is he in some way giving tacit approval to it, or is he? And the answer to that question is that Peter is calling people to live faithfully in a situation they are simply in. Uh, the Christian movement at this point is young, small, and fragile. If Peter advocated for the end of slavery, it would have simply, it would have detracted. It would have made the Christian movement into a political movement. It would change the mission of the early church. And there would be very little a power that a ragtag group of Christians could could do to overcome the systematic evil. Uh, one of uh, um, a really influential theologian, Miroslav Volf, what he says is that what Christianity did was something real, more powerful. And he says what is more powerful than Peter coming out against slavery is this. He says what's even more powerful then condemning slavery was the Bible's allegiance to the crucified Messiah and the worship of a crucified God. He says that act was a subverts political domination. Both says at the heart of Christianity is a God who becomes a slave. He, he becomes a slave. He becomes the lowest of all, and we worship this God who overcame it all. And he says what is more powerful than a direct prohibition of it is this idea that God not only is against slavery, but he experienced it and he overcame it. Christianity takes all the air out of slavery. Uh, in fact, historically, the abolitionist movement uh, and in the first – in as it was practiced as – uh, Christians historically knew, even in American slavery, that the Bible did not endorse slavery. What's interesting is that you can go back right now and find something called a slave Bible, a slave's Bible. This is a Bible that slave masters gave to their slaves in American history, also in British history. This slave's Bible omitted key passages of the Bible. It omitted things like Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, which says that there's neither slave nor free. It omitted books like Philemon, which is Paul telling Onesimus, his servants, to make yourself free, and he's exhorting for him to become free. These slave owners knew that the Bible did not endorse slavery. In fact, it militated against it, so they had to, they had to take parts of the Bible out. And give it to their slaves because they know they knew that the Bible did not endorse that. 
there is no way the Bible endorses in any some any sense any semblance an evil institution like slavery. Uh, the uh, historically Christians who understood that began things like the abolitionist movement. People like uh, William Wilberforce, who understood people are all made in the image of God. People like Martin Luther King Jr. leading civil rights movement. His ethos, his ethic came from the scriptures, understanding uh, the will of God, man made in the image of God, the quality of God's people. And the call of Christians is the same today, historically, is that we are called to stand against injustice. You know, in Peter's time, being a faithful citizen simply meant submitting. Uh, being a faithful citizen in the United States in our context means voting. It means advocacy. It even means some forms of protest. That's what it means to be a faithful citizen. And Christians are called to be faithful in those ways, to stand with God. It's not about being on the right side of history. It's about being on the right side of the scriptures. It's about standing in lockstep with the Bible and it's called to freedom the quality of all people made in the image of God. And that's the calling of Christians today. Uh, the Bible calls us to fight against injustice. But here's the second thing. And this is the thing. The Bible always surprises you. Not only are we called to fight against injustice, but we are also called to submit to injustice when necessary. This is the second point. The key address that Peter makes is towards slaves. But what's surprising is that Paul uh, Peter, rather, in verse 18, uh, he, he calls us all slaves. He says, we're slaves of God. And so this passage is not just directed towards slaves, people who are literal slaves. But Peter is saying, we're all slaves to God. We all need to have a posture of submission. And he uses the example of slaves as an illustration for how all of our posture should be. Verse 18, Peter says slaves should submit to their masters. But he specifically says this is not just for uh, just masters, but he says for in 19, even when you endure unjust suffering, we, when you are a victim of injustice. Sometimes we're called to fight against injustice where we can, but we're often in situations where we can't fight injustice. What do we do then? And Peter says, then you're called to submit under it. You're to submit under your injustice. And when you do that, in verse 19, with an eye on God, knowing that he sees you, and you're doing that not out of sheer will, but a desire to please God and to do it with his strength, God says he's going to transform that that suffering, he will overcome that injustice. In verse 21, Peter says that when you submit under injustice with an eye on God, you're like Jesus. Verse 21, uh, he talks about the person of Jesus. One of the most profound things about Christianity is that God Almighty, who had every right came down to this earth, not as a ruler to lay down the law, but Jesus came to this earth as a slave. 
Jesus says, I am God Almighty, but I have come down to become the lowest slave, to serve every single person in humanity, to give my life away. I've come to do that. In verse 21, Peter talks about all the injustices that Jesus faced, how he was slandered. It talks about how he was beaten. Uh, Jesus Christ went through a sham trial at the end of his life. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was exposed. And he died the most humiliating, painful death known to man. God Almighty, the most perfect man, the only perfect man who ever lived in Jesus, went through all of that injustice. And Peter says in verse 23 that he did not return any of the taunts, any of, he did not revile in return. In the greatest act of sacrifice, Jesus stayed on the cross. He bore our sin. This act of injustice was redemptive. In verse 24, Peter says, it was by Jesus' wounds we are healed. That it's that great act of injustice that Jesus bore for us which had this healing, redemptive effect for his people. He did that for us. Ultimately, the great, this great act of injustice was turned on its head. When Jesus resurrected from the grave, it was a great vindication to show he was, in fact, righteous. He is the great king of kings, and the world will know him. And he's coming to earth to show and demonstrate to every human being his righteousness and glory. That injustice will be turned over. And what Peter is saying is that when you face injustice, you're like Jesus. And just as Jesus, his injustice was turned over and God used it, he's going to do the same in your life. You might be feeling discouraged. You might be feeling the weight of things that you should not be feeling. But Peter says, you're like Jesus. Put your eye on him. In verse 21, Peter says, for to him, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Our calling is to follow Jesus. He is our example. That word example in the Greek was used for a person, a child who would trace over the letters of the alphabet in order to learn to write it correctly. Um, my youngest daughter, her name is Cadence, and she loves the arts. And lately, she she loves she has she's been using tracing paper. I don't know if you remember that tracing paper, super thin paper that you use that you can see through. And she has all these elaborate designs, and she puts the tracing paper over, it and she she's able to weave these intricate, beautiful designs, things that you would never be able to do freehand. But that, that uh, tracing paper is training her to make these beautiful designs, things that she can never do on her own. Uh, Peter says that we need to place our life over Jesus. Some of us are trying to live our life freehand. We're trying to just live our own life, do our own thing, go our own way, make our own decisions. But Peter says place your life over Jesus' life. Copy his life. Even in his sufferings, his hardships, his injustices, the way he served, the way he loved. Copy his life. Trace your life 
by looking at Jesus. And God's going to do beautiful things. God's going to take you to places you've never been. Your life will become beautiful. You might be experiencing some tough things, but see and trace your hardships and line it up with Jesus's injustices, his hurts, his pains. You're going to see that God's doing something beautiful. No, you might be experiencing injustice right now, pain, people slandering you, speaking evil against you, ridiculing you. And see in that the life of Jesus. Martin Luther King said, uh, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. He says, man, it's, it's sometimes it's going to take a long way to get there, but it will get there. And this leads us to our final point, the end of all injustice. There's a tension that I've been talking about. This tension is fighting against injustice or patiently enduring it. You might feel like, man, there's a tension there between those two things. There's some things that can be changed that you are called to change, but there are some things you can't change. You're called to patiently endure it. But that begs the question when you patiently endure injustices, well, what about those victims victims of injustice? What about those who perpetuate hateful, evil, racist ideologies? What about them? It's not right for them to get away with that. What about all those people who've done uh, hellacious, sinful, evil, wicked things? How are they let off the hook? Well, that's why Peter says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Peter talks about the day of visitation. And this is a key theme throughout the Bible. The day when God visits again. Theologians are often mixed about, is this a good thing or a bad thing, the day of visitation? And the answer is that it's both. It's both a day of judgment and for some it's a day of salvation. It's a day of judgment for all. But for some, it's also a day of salvation. It's a day of judgment for all. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about this idea that when God visits again, Jesus the King would judge every single human being. It says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says that one day every single person will have to give an account for his life. Everything you've done, whether good or evil, everything will be recorded. You will have to give account. Every evil injustice will have to be accounted for. God will judge everything. Every evil act will not escape this judgment, this verdict that God will give. You know, today we're seeing all these outrageous things, videos that often go viral of, of racist acts, injustice, things that are, that are sickening. And we are called in some ways to fight against that. We are called to fight against injustice. But ultimately what keeps us from spiraling out of control in our rage and anger is the idea that one day they will appear before the judgment seat of God. God's going to judge that. I'm not ultimately the judge, jury, and the executioner. They will one day answer to God, and I can leave that with God. We're called to act for justice, certainly. But what keeps us from the rage from getting out of control is to say, well, ultimately, 
that's in God's hands. That's him. He will righteously be able to judge that. They will have to give an account for that. And that gives us some semblance of peace. Ultimately, the judgment day for believers, uh, judgment can be sound like a scary thing. But the good news for believers is that in the judgment day, ultimately, we will be, if we have faith in Christ, he takes that judgment in our stead. In First Peter four twenty four to 25, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, it's interesting that Peter talks about the cross as a tree. He doesn't say the cross. He specifically says the tree. And the whole Bible, in some sense, is a story about the tree. Uh, Adam and Eve, they sinned, and the sin was about a tree. They ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because of that, they were sentenced to death. That's the curse from the tree. Jesus was sinless, but yet he died on what? On a tree. And the idea is that Jesus is the second Adam. He has come to undo, to take the curse of that first sin, which had to do with the tree, by dying on the tree. He's come to take the curse for us. And if you are a believer and God calls you to this hope, if you're not a believer, that when you place your faith in Christ, the judge has become the Savior. Jesus, the judge, can be your Savior. He takes that judgment for you. And as Peter says, by his wounds, we are healed. We have a Christ who, uh, on judgment day, uh, sin will either be judged by the perp- perpetrators of it, or that sin will be judged in Jesus, and Jesus will take that sin. Either way, justice will be done. Justice will be received. And the, the invitation for, for everyone is to come to him. Come to Christ. Come see in him. The, the judge that has become a savior. You know, as we close, the call then of Christians then is to live uh, so distinctly and differently. You know, that's what Peter's been saying is that if you're a believer, man, your life should look so distinct from everyone else. In verse 12, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits calling of Christians now is to live under the king, live distinctly, honor, obey your earthly authorities, but live such different lives that everyone around you, non-Christians, would say, hey, something is different. That does your life draw people to Jesus, especially during this, this difficult time that we are all experiencing. Does your life draw you, draw people to see Jesus? Or is the church and our Christians the same way as everyone else, especially in this partisan atmosphere? Are you just the same way as everyone else, the same anger, the same lifestyle? Um, I was reading a, a word from Tim Keller, and he's talking about the early church and how different it was, how nonpartisan it was. He says the early church was marked by five things. One, multiracial and multiethnic. Secondly, highly committed to caring for the poor and marginalized. Third, non-retaliatory, marked by commitment to forgiveness, 
Four, strongly and practically against abortion and infanticide. Five, revolutionary regarding the ethics of sex. He says the first two would be labeled liberal, the multi-ethnic, the highly committed to caring for the poor. He says the last two would be considered highly conservative against abortion, ethics and sex and marriage. And he says the early church was neither. They couldn't be categorized. They were neither conservative nor liberal. They were something wholly different. And the temptation of the church is to be one or the other. And the calling of the church is to let to not be divided by partisan politics, but let let the church's template be the Bible. Trace the church should be tracing its its DNA with the Bible so that when the world looks at us, they can't make sense of us. They don't understand how we live and the love and care, yet the ethics that we have. We look so different than everybody else, so different than people yelling all around us. We look so different in our love and our compassion, the way that we see power, but in our ethics and our purity. The church should be something other than what we're seeing today. And the calling of the church is to come. The one who makes it all together is to Jesus. Verse 25 says that we all stray. Church is straight so much. And so have we all. But what brings us back is Jesus. He's the shepherd and overseer of our soul. And what brings the church together and Christians together is Jesus. It always comes back to him. Peter know, knew this idea that of straying. Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus loved him and forgave him. Do you see Jesus as a CEO or a political leader? Well, he's none of those things. Who is he? He's the shepherd and overseer of your soul. He loves you so much. Jesus became a slave to set you free, to bring you back to him. He loves you. Would the church come back to this person of Jesus, especially in our divided time, especially in our time when people are so hopeless and discouraged? Would our life, the template of our life, be about Jesus and be so focused on Jesus? I want to follow you, your life, your love, your ministry. Would we be drawn back to this person of Jesus? Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning, and Lord, we know that in these really divided times, it's easy to lose focus. It's easy to become political like everyone else, to be divided like everyone else, to compromise like so many around us. And Lord, we confess that we have done that. I have done that. But I thank you, God, that you are not a CEO or a manager but you're a shepherd. And that no matter how far we've strayed from the ideals that you've given to us in the church, you always welcome us back home. So this morning, we want to come back home. We want to see you. We want to follow you. We want to know you. We don't want to be like this world. Oh, we want to be so distinct from it. Uh, We want to love so deeply and profoundly. We want to be set apart in purity. And Father, so... We need Jesus to become so much larger in our life and in our church. We need a Savior who can lead us out of the darkness into the light. Help us to trace our life on Jesus. Help us to follow him.
So continue to lead us, especially now, for your namesake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.